So to begin with, what we discover is there's like zillions of miracles flying all over these two chapters. And if you were to start, let's go to um, chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And we're just going to take a little bit of a, of, a, of a walk through about three of them. So I'm going to read here. When Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. Now, the first time I thought that, I said, that's really sexist. I want some pizza. Be healed. Get me a pizza. You know. Actually, what's really cool about this, that's not the way it is at all. Um, what's really, really cool about this is that when Matthew tells stories, he likes to layer all kinds of things on these stories. And in a curious sort of way, Matthew is retelling the story of Genesis 1. Because when God created our first parents, he gave them two jobs. And number one, make life happen. And number two, nourish that life, serve, serve that life, steward it so that it would flourish. And guess what? That's exactly what God was doing as he was creating the world. He was making life happen. Let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be fish. And he was then serving that life, stewarding it, nourishing it so that it would flourish. So we discover that what it means to be a human being is to serve God, serve each other, and serve creation. Stuff's gotten in the way because we decided to be kings and queens of our own palaces, our own universes, made a mess of things. So Jesus Christ is coming to restore it so that indeed we can finally be human again. Well, one of the ways our brokenness impacts us is physical disease. Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. That's never what God intended, but there it is. Jesus cures her, and what does she begin to do? She begins to serve them. You got this mini little story right there in that diggy little thing of what Jesus is to do, to restore us to be the full human beings that God has designed for us to be all along. All that in a bag of chips right there in two verses. Now, we're going to see that all the way through, how Jesus is restoring people to be what God dreams for them to be. Let's keep on going. Now we got, let's move to chapter 8, verses 28, and I've got a little bit of a different version, so if you hear things just a little bit differently, uh, don't worry, it's all the same Bible. So when Jesus arrived on the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men come from the tombs, and they met him. They were so violent that no one wanted to pass that way. What do you want to do to us, Son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Hear that? These people, for some reason, have been so banged up, so beat up, so messed up through probably all kinds of horrible things that have happened to them, but also probably through some false decisions they've made, that they have wound up become vulnerable to dark, evil, demonic forces that literally seem to be possessing them, controlling their actions, make them do things they would not choose to do. They've wrecked their lives, and they probably think this is what they have to put up forever. In fact, they have so distorted things that when Jesus shows up, all they can say through those demonic powers is, have you come here to torture us? Well, what did we learn about Jesus? Far from being the torturer, he's the healer. And so he commands those demons to leave those two possessed men and then it says right here, then those, and, and he threw the demons and pigs, which I think is a great, if, if you're Jewish, it makes perfect sense. You don't like pigs anyways. We Gentiles are like, what's the matter with bacon? But the Jews are like, ha, we don't eat bacon anyways. Go possess porky. <laughs> so it says that those who were tending the, the pigs ran off, went in the town, reported all this, included what had happened to these demon-possessed men. And then I love this. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they pleaded for him to leave the region. They were terrified of this guy. 
this guy took two people who were loaded down with brokenness, including demonic forces, set them free. And in another gospel, it says, and when the townspeople saw these people sitting there in their right mind, Jesus restored to them their sanity, their humanity, their sense of touch of reality. In another um, reading of this, it says that they were cutting themselves. People still do that today. They, they, they have so much pain in their lives that they begin, that they can't even feel because the pain weighs them down and the only way they can feel alive is to cut themselves. And it says that Jesus restored them where they stopped doing that and they begin to feel once again. And this healing was so radical it terrified people. Who is this person who has this kind of power to restore people this way? And the reaction was to say, please go away, you scare us. And then finally, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So Jesus steps into a boat. He seems to be crossing this, this, this lake a lot. Crossed over again. You know, someone could make a business off of Jesus and his followers by just charging, you know, boat rides. And it says, so he went to his hometown. In verse 2, chapter 9, it says, Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to this man, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And I used to think that was kind of bizarre. I did some studying around it. And one person, a one Bible study um, scholar, he said, you know, that's not that crazy because even today modern science knows that, that sometimes our unfinished business, the stuff that we need to deal with that we don't, sometimes it can so overtake, it, overtake us, the regrets, the pain, the secrets, the bitterness, the habits, the addictions can so overtake us that it can begin to mess with us physically. We call that psychosomatic symptoms. That's the fancy word for it. And it's quite possible this man was so overtaken by his, his unfinished business that it began to mess with his ability to function and he became a paralytic, someone who could not walk, someone who was paralyzed. And people thought, well, just make him walk. And Jesus says, no, we're going to deal with the root problem that maybe stopped him in the first place. So Jesus goes way down deep into the hurt. And when he says, I forgive you, that word in the original New Testament language means whatever it is, I'm going to throw it away as far as the east is from the west. In the original Greek, to forgive means to throw away or to set loose, to toss it away. And Jesus tosses that thing away from that man and he begins to walk. You see, Jesus wants to restore us to be complete human beings. He knows how he designed us. He wants to restore us so that we get back in our right mind that we don't have to harm ourselves just to feel alive. And Jesus wants to go to the root of whatever is hurting us, not just dealing with the symptoms up top. He wants to go way down there to the bottom and heal it right down there so that when we walk, it's a deep, permanent healing with no relapse. Now, let's head now to what we read just a little bit, a few minutes ago, chapter 9, verses 27. And I love this one. This is a setup. Matthew is having so much fun here. He is going to make the Pharisees look very, very silly. He's going to expose them for who they are. So it says, As Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Let's just stop there. There is so much in this. We've got blind men. Remember you heard that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being leagued with the devil? So, but the blind man say, have mercy on us, son of David. Now this is gutsy, 
because the phrase son of David is an Old Testament term that literally means the person that God has chosen to come and set everything right. And the word chosen in the Old Testament is the word for anointing. And that word in Hebrew is Mashiach. Turn to your neighbor and say Mashiach. Now wipe your neighbor down. Um, it's that ach thing that will always get you in trouble. Notice that it's not much of a jump because the Hebrew word Mashiach for anointed or chosen in English is Messiah. And if you translate it into Greek, you have Christ. So Christ and Messiah are the same words. And so these people are saying, have mercy on me. God's chosen one, God's anointed, God's Messiah who's come to set all things right. They see who Jesus is even though they are physically blind. I wonder if Matthew's saying, let's see who really sees and let's see who's really blind. And then one more step, Jesus says, do you believe I can do this? And they say, yes, you can. So they know not only that he's God's chosen, but that he can deliver the goods. Maybe they watched when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Maybe they watched when Jesus restored the demon-possessed men to sanity. Maybe they were watching when Jesus healed the paralytic and knew just how to do it to go right down to the base of the hurt and heal it and forgive it. We don't know, but these men know who Jesus is and they know what he can do and they want it done to them. And it says in verse 29, Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And then it says, Jesus warned them sternly, see that nobody knows about this. And so they go and tell everybody. What's all that about? Well, if you look around, there's some people who don't like Jesus a whole lot as we're about ready to run into him. One of them is a guy named King Herod. You see, Herod's name is King of the Jews. Well, you want to know another name for the Messiah? King of the Jews. Well, there's a problem. There's only room in Dodge for one sheriff. Yeah, and if it gets out that Jesus is doing this King of the Jews thing too much, Herod's going to send his soldiers out and maybe do a little arresting. Throw Jesus in the slammer, just like he did with his cousin John. So Jesus is saying, I'll heal you, but let's keep it on the down low. Because I, I don't want any trouble with Herod's men. Going to have plenty of trouble in a couple of years. Don't want it now. Well, apparently that didn't work. Because they got so excited, they went and told everybody. And then it says... We keep on going. While they were going out, there's another demon-possessed man who could not talk. See, we have people who are, who are so broken, they lose their sanity. We have people who are so broken, they can't walk. And we have people who are so broken, they can't talk. Because dark powers are oppressing them. And it says, this guy was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who was mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And then Israel's shepherds. They want to weigh in. Israel's key leaders, the Pharisees, they want to weigh in. What is their assessment of Jesus? Well, here we go. It is by the prince of demons that he die, drives out demons. Or another way of putting it is the dude's in league with the devil. Don't pay attention to him. Now, really, does this strike you as a little bit bizarre? I mean, Jesus has been healing people, forgiving people, setting them free from demons. He's been healing them to walk, restoring their sight. You name it, he's doing it. And what do the leaders of Israel think? The dudes in league with the devil. How on earth did they come to that conclusion? How did these incredibly devout Jews, the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, come to that conclusion? Well, before we go there, I want to look at what Jesus does with their crazy response. What does Jesus do? Does he defend himself? Does he list five points of why he's really the Messiah? 
And, and four reasons why he can't possibly be in league with the devil. Does he chew him out? Actually, if you keep reading, and I want to read this for you, verse 35, here's what Jesus does in response to the Pharisees' accusation. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. That's what he did. In other words, he just kept on keeping on. Nothing stopped him. You want to know why you're wrong? Let me do some more of it. You want to know why you got it upside down? Let me show you. Let's heal some more people. Let some more people free. You really think the devil wants to free people? Excuse me? And then Jesus makes a very, very sad observation. He tells the truth about the Pharisees. He tells the truth about these spiritual leaders of Israel who should know better. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. What's all that about? Well, who were the Pharisees? They were the shepherds of Israel. But apparently they've walked off the job. Even worse, they've been harassing the sheep. And we know that's exactly what the priests do at the temple in downtown Jerusalem, is they've turned the whole thing into a nice little business where they're making a ton of money off the worshipers. You want to sacrifice? Great. Mortgage your house. We're going to charge you a ton. And not only that, we're only going to let the right people in. The Pharisees and the priests and Herod have walked off the job, and the people of Israel are all alone, even harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. There are no workers for the harvest because they're too busy playing religion. So Jesus fires them all and hires some more. In verse 10, it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. If the Pharisees won't do it, if the temple priests won't do it, if King Herod won't do it, Jesus' followers are going to do it. There's a new sheriff in town and he's cleaning house and hiring a bunch of new deputies. And that's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. You see, nobody can stop God from doing his thing. You see, nobody can stop Jesus from healing you. I don't care what you've heard from some pastor somewhere before. I don't care what you've heard from some uptight religious person somewhere before. Jesus wants to heal you. Jesus wants to restore your sanity. Jesus wants you to walk, to see, to have the life that he desires for you to have, just like Peter's mother-in-law. To be able to be part of God's grand plan to make life happen and then to serve life so that it flourishes. But to do that, we need to know what went wrong with the Pharisees so we don't wind up being like them. What happened to these people? Well, let's just kind of unpack who the Pharisees are. About 150 years before Christ, things were really bad in Israel. And there arose this movement that was to kind of clean things up, to purify Israel, if you were, because it was all about legalism, about all the things you had to do to get God to love you. And this movement was about the fact that God already loved you. This was a movement about God's grace, God's forgiveness, and it was called the Pharisaical movement. The early Pharisees were the good guys, folks, because they wanted to purify Israel of all its corruption, all its oppression, and so it would be the people that God had intended all along. But something happened, and, and slowly, instead of purifying Israel for grace, it got to be about all purity in itself. Purity became the point. 
It was all about being clean. And so instead of purity and cleanliness being about experiencing God's grace, it meant about being in this kind of weird notion of perfection. Because again, to believe that if we're not pure, then God won't love us. <clears throat> Sounds like the very thing they were trying to clean up, they're now promoting. That when God came back, you had to be pure, unstained. You had to be clean. You couldn't be dirty. And so the Pharisees turned this into an isolation strategy by avoiding anything that would make them dirty, anything that would keep them from being pure. And that was the sick and the broken and the outcast, the women, the slaves, the Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with the dirty people. They literally became the uptight, upright people of Judaism. Now here comes Jesus, and he's not opposed to purity. He kind of likes it. He's not opposed to the cleanliness, cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. They're kind of a good idea. For example, there's a reason they didn't eat porky back then, because they had no refrigerators, and they weren't really good at curing bacon. Yes, eating porky in the first century was pretty well a guarantee you'd get salmonella. Don't want that. As they said in my, my elementary school, you don't want silly Sally. Um, so don't eat raw bacon out of your mother's refrigerator, no matter how good it smells. And there was another reason for the purity laws and the cleanliness laws is they were to, even though things weren't wrong, the Jews refrained from them voluntarily to sort of mark them out as a unique people. It was kind of God's marketing strategy that they were to treat each other with the character of God and then act just a little bit different so people would get curious and say, who are these people who live life so well? I want what they got. But the Pharisees turned all that cleanliness and purity Instead of it being a marketing strategy, it became an exclusion strategy. How to keep the bad people out. No, no, no. You don't want to do that. So Jesus had a brand new understanding of purity and cleanliness. It wasn't to stay away from people so he wouldn't be unclean and, and somehow impure. No, it was to wade right into the midst of them and make them all clean. Jesus' purity strategy was to make everybody else pure, to make everybody else clean, to heal them, to make them whole. So let's take a look at how he did it in the time we have left. Back to chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Leopards were the most dirty, impure things on the planet. If you got leprosy, which was basically a generic term for a skin disease, you were kicked out of your family, kicked out of your village, fired from your job, couldn't attend the temple, you were isolated from your, your employment, your livelihood, your income, your family, your friends, and even from God. You were thrown out into the desert, and good luck with that. If you got any food, it was because people left it for you, maybe. Lots of people starved to death who were quarantined out there. And so this man basically is living a life of no hope. He's an untouchable He's been thrown into a hole he can't get out of. And when the rabbi passes by, he does something he shouldn't. He yells out, Rabbi, if you can, you can make me clean. He's not supposed to be talking. The only thing this man is supposed to do when someone goes by is ring a bell and yell, unclean, unclean, stay away. Well, Jesus pays attention to him. And you can just imagine all the folks around going, you can't do that. That's a leper. You can't do that. That man's dirty. Stay away. Jesus approaches him. He's already offending people. And he says, I will be willing to make you clean. And then he does something. There is no way we can even get in our minds how shocking and offensive this is. He touches that dirty person. He might as well have told everybody what he thought of their mothers, you know, in a bad way. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not going any further, but you get the point. This was like a cuss word being said. He dropped a bomb. You just figure out what letter was in front of it. And people are shocked. He has touched a, 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 a rabbi who should know better has touched a dirty person. And it says that this man was healed immediately from his skin disease. But I think he was healed from a whole lot more because I think that touch was the first one he'd got maybe in a decade. And I don't think it was like this. I think it was more like this. And I don't know which was the greater healing, his skin disease or his heart. Because the man got his dignity back. Jesus didn't become dirty. This man became clean. And then let's keep on going. If you fast forward a little bit, take a look at um, the fifth chapter. I'm sorry, at chapter 8, verse 5. And then when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, a Roman centurion, came to him asking for help. Lord, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Here's another person who's dirty and unclean, a Roman centurion. You know who this guy is? He's an army officer. He's in charge of our regiment. A regiment of soldiers occupying Israel and harassing Israel and oppressing Israel. He's the enemy. You don't talk to the enemy. And here comes the enemy approaching Jesus and a good rabbi would ignore him or at best chew him out. And instead he engages him, once again giving offense. Jesus, you're going to get dirty talking to this dirty Gentile. This dirty Gentile occupying soldier who ought to be assassinated at two in the morning for occupying us. And instead he comes up and the centurion says, if you can, you can make my servant clean. And Jesus says, shall I come to your house? Jesus dropped another bomb. You put your own letter in front of it. No, good Jews don't go to anybody's Gentile house. That's a dirty house. And especially rabbis don't do that. And Jesus just offered to go to the enemy's house. He's a traitor. Not only is Jesus unclean, he's a traitor. How dare you hang with the enemy? And the centurion says, don't bother. I know about authority. When I say come, someone comes. When I say go do that, people do that. And I've seen your power. Just say the word and my servant shall be healed. And then Jesus decides to go for the gold. This is the insult. This is the mother of all insults. He looks around, and I'm sure there's Pharisees in the crowd. There may be some temple priests. And he says, never have I found such faith in Israel. And then he says, go, your servant is healed. And the Bible says, that the servant was healed in that very hour. Not only does Jesus listen to the dirty Gentile, not only does Jesus volunteer to go to his house, now Jesus says that he is more faithful than all the pure Israelites. What seems to make you pure? Trusting that Jesus is good for his word and that he can deliver the goods. You see, purity is getting redefined. It's about being hooked up with Jesus. Purity happens when you get hooked up with Christ. And he makes you whole. It's not about how separate you are from all the bad and the dirty and the icky people. Because guess what? If you've got a pulse, you are the icky people. We're the icky people group. And Jesus loves icky people. He loves the outcast, the dirty, the messed up, the beat up, the screwed up. And then, finally, chapter 9, verse 9. I love this. I'm one chapter away. I've got to get back up. Jesus goes, 
and he's walking by a tax collector. And, 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 and this is very personal for Matthew because he's the tax collector. And this tax collector is most likely working for King Herod, and he's collecting tolls at a road. And because he works for Herod, he's hated as much as Herod. Because Herod is a murdering, homicidal maniac. He kills people for fun. He killed off his own kids so that they wouldn't take the throne over and he could stay there longer. That's how crazy that man is. And here's Matthew working for him, collecting taxes. And the only way he can make a living is to take more than what Herod needs. So Matthew makes his living off of extortion, which in this country is illegal, gets you in jail. He's dirty. He's filthy. Because he oppresses the people, just like the Roman. And Jesus walks up to him and does the most offensive thing of all. He invites him to join him. He invites him to be his friend, to follow him. Follow me. And then Matthew's so excited, he throws a party for all his colleagues. So Jesus is at the tax collector's party, and the religious people are scandalized again. A little further on, and, and, we, and I'm going to shorten the story just for time, there's a woman who's been bleeding with a hemorrhage. And, and Jesus is teaching, and, and she says, if I can, she thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garden and I'll be healed now this internal bleeding has made her dirty as well just like the leper and no one is to touch her but she is so desperate she does probably one of the most offensive things in this chapter here's this crowd around Jesus imagine 50 to 100 people around Jesus and she just plows into them like a linebacker out of my way out of my way out of my way I need to get to him and, and she's making every one of them unclean and they're shocked and someone says get rid of her how dare she? And she touches Jesus' garment and he says, Who touched me? And Peter's going, Yeah, right. No, no, who touched me? And this woman is terrified at what Jesus will do because of what she has done. And she says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And I could see all the upright, uptight people saying, How dare he? We have all become unclean. We've all got to clean ourselves. How dare he reward her for that? They have totally missed what real cleanliness is, what real purity is. It is being touched by Jesus. It is being touched by Jesus. And they don't understand that the one who can give what they are longing for is in their midst and they have nothing to fear from that woman. This is what Matthew says about this. He's quoting Isaiah in chapter 8, verse 17. He says, this is who Jesus is, according to the prophet Isaiah. He took our diseases, he took on our sicknesses, and he bore our diseases. And by his stripes, we have been healed. You see, we have this God that when he looks at all our junk, all our secrets, all our regrets, our brokenness, our habits, bad decisions, you name it, our pain. He goes, you're my favorite kind of people. You're just the one I've been looking for. I want to make you whole. I want to make you clean. I want to make you pure. I want to restore you back to what I had in mind all along so that you can buy, be like me, make life flourish and serve life so that it flourishes. That's what Jesus has in mind. You see, the Pharisees had it upside down. They were avoiding the pain and brokenness of the world, but Jesus was about waiting right into the middle of things and setting things right. And then he sent out his followers, folks, and that means us, to do the very same thing. 
God has given us His Spirit, so by the power of His Spirit, we may be, as Martin Luther called us, little Christs, little Messiahs, bearing the presence of Jesus, so that by our touch, literally His touch through us, we would make people whole, make them well, restore their sanity, give them their dignity back, make them whole, give them hope. So where are you in this story? Are you one of the desperate waiting to touch Jesus' garment or waiting for him to restore your sight? Or are you terrified someone's going to make you dirty if you get too close to them? Where are you there? Well, if you're terrified someone's going to make you dirty, it's a bit late for that. You have a pulse. You already got dirt on you. Just to sober us up, 50% of all men who claim to be Christians struggle with the Internet. And the other 50% struggle with it in their heads. And that's not a stat, that's just what Jesus says. So we're all kind of messed up together. That's just the guys. The women's, you all know what you're dealing with too. So who's really all that pure? Who really doesn't need a healer? If you were to read, there's another story of a man who can't walk, and Jesus asks him before he heals him, do you want to get well? And the man's got a load of excuses. The Pharisees' excuses, they didn't need a healer. They were pure enough. And because they let loose with that excuse, they cut themselves off from the very thing Jesus wanted to do for them. So where are you in this story? Do you know you need to be healed? Do you know you're one of Jesus' favorite people? Or are you worried about your reputation, your image, your religiousness? I love the Lord's Supper. I'm a Lord's Supper junkie because all of what we've been talking about is embodied in that evening. I love the way the story goes. It begins with, on the night he was betrayed. Well, who betrays him? One of his closest followers. We always focus on Judas. We ought to focus on some more dirt. Speaking of dirt. Well, not only does Judas betray Jesus, Peter denies Jesus, and the rest of them all run away. What a mess. This is Jesus' team? Boy, Team Jesus needs a bit of reshuffling, I think. They're a bunch of losers. What does Jesus do with losers? Well, as they're all gathered around, about ready to do the mess they're going to do and leave them all alone to die, he doesn't chew them out. He doesn't fire them. He doesn't walk away. He takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them saying, This is my body given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And I don't think he's being all abstract and theological. I mean, I think he means this is given to you for the forgiveness of you who is going to betray me, you who's going to deny me, and all y'all who are going to run away. You see, you can walk away from me, but I ain't going to walk away from you. And then he takes the cup and he does it a second time in case they kind of miss the message. And he says, this is the new promise of my blood. This is the new covenant given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. This is my lifeblood. I'm not going to walk away from you. Instead, I'm going to pour my life into you. Jesus' solution to the betrayers, the deniers, and the cowards is to pour his life into them and transform them. And if you look at his disciples after the resurrection, they are different people, folks. This is the promise of the Lord's Supper that as you receive him in this meal and the Bible promises that he's present in this meal in a mysterious way we don't understand but the promise is true. If you let Jesus 
pour his life into you. You go way different. Jesus has got a deal for you. It goes like this. Come on forward. And as you receive the bread and wine, give him your junk, your secrets, your habits, your pain, your bitterness, your regret. And in exchange, he will give you his life, his forgiveness, his friendship, his power, and his healing. This, folks, is a healing meal. This is the place where the kingdom shows up. Jesus gave us a prayer to pray at all times called, called the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray that as he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.